No, it's great to see you all. Uh, please open up into your, in your Bible to Colossians chapter 2. We're returning to Colossians again this morning. Hope you're enjoying uh, our series in this wonderful letter as much as we are. Uh, this morning, I've given the, uh, a title to this morning's sermon of Complete in Christ. Complete in Christ. We, um, we talked last week about how Colossians chapter 2 is largely concerned with protecting the Colossians against the lies of false teachers and false teaching. Paul doesn't want them to be taken captive in their understanding, is what we saw. He, he doesn't want them to be fooled into thinking that they don't already have all that they already need in Christ, all that they need for living a full and complete Christian life. And we saw last week how the vaccine every Christian needs to protect us against that kind of thinking is quite simply to see and know Christ in all his fullness, embracing the truth that we have already been filled and made complete in him. Uh, and it, it occurred to me as I thought about it more this week that the warnings of this chapter are a bit like, uh, imagine you're walking along the road and suddenly someone pulls up in a van, they stop next to you and they try and lure you into their van with the promise of money. Now there are two complementary things that will protect us in that moment from getting in the van and being kidnapped. Firstly, it helps to see the deceit and the hollowness of the offer. That while they're promising to give us riches, what they're actually out to do is rob us and take us away. It helps to see that their promises won't deliver. But secondly, what would help us as well, even more I think, in that kind of scenario, would be to realise that we're already rich beyond our wildest dreams. And we therefore don't need the paltry sum that this dodgy dealer is trying to offer to us anyway even if they do have money in the van for us, which they don't. Okay, so that's our first lesson this morning. Don't get in vans with strangers. But it's helpful, isn't it, to see both the, the falseness of the promise, but also the riches we already have. The two things together protect us and help us to resist those alluring false claims. So that's what Paul is doing throughout this letter, and especially in chapter 2, reminding his readers that not only are the promises of any and all false teachers deceitful and empty, but we don't need what they're promising, pretending to give us anyway, because we already have all fullness of spiritual riches in Christ. We're already spiritually rich beyond measure. We are complete if we have Jesus. That's the, the overarching message. That's what Paul is doing more of in our passage this morning. Now, last week we saw this, uh, frankly, mind-boggling promise that not only does the whole fullness of God dwell in Christ, but even more incredibly, we have been filled, we have been made complete in him. And now in verses 11 to 15 of chapter 2, Paul wants to tell his readers more about what that completeness and fullness in Christ actually looks like. What does it mean? We only scratched the surface last week, and now Paul's going to take us deeper. So uh, let's read. We're looking at verses 11 to 15 of chapter 2, but let's read from verse 9 just to remind ourselves of some of what we saw last week. So Colossians 2, verse 9. 
For in him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Okay, now, it's true at first sight, this, these verses can seem like a great flurry of all sorts of different truths. But I think that's because Paul is not content to leave his readers tucked behind a single truth or a single summary truth to guard their hearts and minds from false teaching. I think he wants to protect our faith behind a whole shield wall of truth. I don't know if you've come across this idea of a shield wall in history. There we go, got some pictures up there. Um, ancient armies used to use this technique to protect themselves in the midst of a fierce battle. And so rather than each soldier running out onto the battlefield, just holding their own little shield on their own, they would line up together with their shields butting up tightly together to one another to make an impenetrable wall. Now, I'm not suggesting that Paul particularly had the idea of shields and soldiers in mind, but I do think that what he wants to give his readers is, in effect, a shield wall of truth to protect us from every angle. He wants to remind us of the, the vast and the varied riches that belong to us in Jesus so that we can resist the arguments of every false teacher and stand our ground together so that anyone who might come to us suggesting to us with these plausible arguments, ah, but you still lack something here or here or in this way or that way, they won't be permitted to press even the subtlest lie through. Because this great shield wall of truth that we see in these verses, that the Colossians possess, that we possess, will hold strong on all sides and provide us with complete coverage and protect our confidence in Christ. Assuring us that in every way we are full and complete in him. So, that's a bit of an introduction what does this fullness and completeness in Christ actually look, look like? Let's get down into the nitty-gritty of it now. Uh, in verses 11 to 15, I think Paul, we could break it down and sum it up. Paul hones in on two particular things. We have complete salvation and we have complete forgiveness. So that's, we're just going to look at it under those two headings this morning. First of all, 11, verses 11 to 13, we have complete salvation. What Paul draws his readers' attention to, first of all, as those who have faith in Christ, is that we have been saved completely through and through from start to finish 
in every way in Christ. Uh, do you notice, uh, do look down at the passage again. Notice how often he repeats the words in Christ and with Christ. He does it five times in just these five verses and many more times throughout the rest of the letter as well. And each and every time he is speaking of every believer's union with Christ. Union with Christ means, in a nutshell, that wherever Christ goes, we go. And as Paul explains here, this, that means that because Christ died and was buried and then rose from the grave, so too, if we're Christians, we have died, been buried and have risen again with him. Now, I wonder if that's how you came in thinking about your life right now this morning. Perhaps you don't often wake up on a Sunday morning feeling like you're particularly alive at all. But the reality is, however full of physical life you might feel or you don't feel today, spiritually speaking, the day you became a Christian, you died, were buried, and you were raised to new life in Christ. You are alive in Christ today. There is a new resurrection life coursing through your spiritual veins that cannot now be extinguished or ever go out. That's what Paul is reminding his readers of here in verses 11 to 13. That's why he mentions baptism. Verse 12, he says, having been buried with Jesus in baptism. Now, when we think of baptism, of course, we, uh, we probably think of the, the outward act, the outward symbol all of us gathering around the pool excitedly, watching a Christian being submerged beneath the water, symbolizing that they have died with Christ, been buried with Christ, the fact that they have been raised to new life with Christ as well. Uh, it's a beautiful moment to witness, isn't it? But the pool and the water, and the going down and up again, is, of course, just an outward symbol of something that's actually taken place already spiritually. Physically, being baptised does not save anyone. It doesn't do anything to us. But it does point to an underlying reality that's already taken place. A reality that does, in fact, save us completely. And that reality is our having been united with Jesus in his death and resurrection. And it's not surprising then that Paul should mention baptism here because it's, it's an amazing physical picture of our spiritual union with Christ in his dying and rising. That's why we do baptisms to picture what's already happened, that we have died and risen with Christ. Now, uh, the question is, uh, why, much more surprisingly, does Paul mention circumcision here? That's not something that, as Christians, God tells us to practice. That, that was very much something just for Old Testament Israel. So why does Paul tell a church full of New Testament Christians, uh, largely a Gentile church as well, why does he tell them, verse 11, in Christ also you were circumcised? Well, the answer is in what he says next. Look how he goes on. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. You see, just like baptism, circumcision was just, a, just an outward act, an outward symbol, a physical thing performed by human hands. But also like baptism, it was 
just intended to symbolize something that was going on or needed to go on internally. So it's an outward act done by human hands, but it's just a symbol of something internal. One big difference, though, was that while baptism symbolizes something that's, that's already happened in a person, on the inside, circumcision symbolized something vital that still needed to happen to those people on the insides. So baptism symbolizes something that has happened. Circumcision was symbolizing something that needed still to happen. Circumcision symbolized the desperate need that every human being has for the cutting away of our hard hearts, our sinful nature, the desperate need every person has for a new, living, beating, clean heart, a new nature to be placed within us. That is something that every single person alive in the world today desperately needs, whether they yet know it or not. But the thing with circumcision was, physical circumcision, it could never actually do the thing that it was symbolizing. It could never perform that inner operation. Um, now, I apologize to the slightly squeamish, which includes me, uh, but this week I, I went into hospital just for a brief appointment to have a bit of shoulder cut out, uh, a biopsy. They cut a small chunk of my shoulder out, and, um, and it certainly affected me externally. It did something to me on the outside, and although it's still bandaged up at the moment, I'm hoping there's a, there's a somewhat manly-looking scar underneath. Find out later on today. But, but, but that didn't do anything to me on the inside. It didn't change my heart. It didn't affect my inner man. It didn't, unfortunately, make me a more godly, loving person, much to many people's disappointment, I'm sure. They just don't offer that on the NHS. Well, in much the same way, circumcision that was done by human hands in the Old Testament could never actually cut away a person's sin. It can never give them new hearts of love toward God. It was just a sign that they needed God himself, rather than human hands, they needed God's hands to circumcise their hearts, to cut away their sin nature and give them a new heart towards God. That, by the way, is why physical circumcision is not the symbol of the new covenant. Because the need that it was pointing to has now been fulfilled in Christ. Baptism is its far better replacement. Uh, not only because it's far less painful, but more importantly because it's a symbol of what has already happened to a Christian and not what still needs to happen. In Christ, the Christian goes down into the water in the baptismal pool because they've already experienced that spiritual circumcision of the heart. Their old sin nature has already been put off and cut away and a new heart, a new nature has been given to them in its place. And the way that that inner circumcision of the heart has happened to us if we're believers, verse 11 tells us, is by the circumcision of Christ. By the circumcision of Christ. This is how this amazing miracle within us has taken place. What does it mean? Well, uh, this here is not Paul referring to that time when Jesus, uh, as an eight-day-old Jewish boy, had a small piece of skin removed and stripped away. No, Paul is really clear here. He's referring at the end of verse 11 to the day when Christ's whole body 
His whole body of flesh was put off and stripped away in his crucifixion and death. That was the day of Christ's circumcision. The day when he was put to death in the flesh, yet not for his own sins, but for ours. So, uh, I hope you like puzzles. Let's put all the puzzle pieces together of verses 11 to 13. What Paul is saying here is that when Christ died, we died. 2 Corinthians 5.14, one died for all and therefore all died. We have been crucified with Christ, Galatians 2 verse 20. Our sin nature has been circumcised, cut off and put to death in the sin-bearing death of Jesus. Uh, Listen and, and look at these words from Romans chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. Paul writes there, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. And not only did our old self die with him, we were, back in Colossians 2 verse 12, also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. We who were dead in our trespasses and the uncircumcision of our flesh, God made alive together with him. Our old self died and it was buried with him, but it didn't end there. We were then raised up with him. God has, past tense, made us newly alive together with Christ. None of us are who we once were. Now let's think about how all of that counters some of the deceitful claims and deceitful promises of so many false teachers. Perhaps they come along and they they try to offer us some kind of deeper, intimate communion with God. Some kind of deeper union with God. But, says Paul, in Christ, you and I already have the deepest possible union with God in Christ. You and I have been buried with him raised with him, made alive together with him, we could not be more deeply united to him and with him. Or perhaps they come along and they try to offer us some fuller experience of divine power, a a, a power encounter with God. But Paul is reminding us here, we've already experienced the immeasurable greatness of God's power towards us when he raised us with Christ from the dead. See, Paul is saying there is no greater manifestation of God's power towards us than that. Nothing, this blows my mind, nothing that God does for us after conversion, even our future physical resurrection, is comparable to what he does for us at the first moment that we put our trust in Jesus when he literally raised us spiritually from uh, spiritual death to spiritual life. Perhaps they came and they promised the Colossians or they promised us some new level of power over the flesh, some new kind of freedom from the power of indwelling sin. Perhaps they offer us a new level of heart consecration to God or the promise of greater purity and a new degree of holiness. And Paul surely knowing how tempting that would be. Paul knew firsthand how much it grieves every Christian that we still experience this constant daily battle with our old nature. 
Every time we fall into sin, we, we so desperately long for more spiritual power to change our hearts and be done with sin. Paul knows that, that the pull of our hearts, it's a good desire, but it can open us up to being misled. The truth is, we've already been given all that we need in Jesus. He's already cut out our old stony hearts and given us new hearts which love God and which do want to go to war against our sin. We're no longer dead in sin or slaves to sin and its power. We have been completely set free from being enslaved to sin. Now we do, of course, have to keep on battling hard against our sin throughout this present life. There is no sinless perfection for us, not by far. But the very fact that we're battling that in our new heart of hearts, we don't want to go on sinning, that the spirit and the flesh are now at war within us, is not a sign that we lack new spiritual life or power, but that we in fact already have it, that we are no longer slaves. You see, slaves don't fight back against their masters, and corpses don't go to war, but we have been set free, and we have been made alive, and so now we fight. Now we battle it out every day with what remains of that old enemy of the flesh within us. So the ongoing battle with sin in your life and in my life isn't proof that we're not Christians. If you're really battling it daily, that's actually such a good sign that you are, that you have in fact already been raised in Christ and if we're in Christ, all that we need to sustain us and strengthen us in the fight is already ours in him. Because we have been given complete salvation in him. Death and resurrection are already ours. We have been raised to new life with Jesus. So already, hopefully, we're feeling that there is a shield wall of truth that is there to ward off the lies of the enemy. And all who might try to deceive us and take us captive. But there's still more. Still more that Paul can say to strengthen our defences and strengthen our comfort and peace and joy as well. Because not only do we have complete salvation from start to finish, death and resurrection, but Paul also shows us here we have complete forgiveness in him. This is our second heading Second of two for this morning, complete forgiveness, verses 13 to 15. I wonder if when we read the passage uh, some few minutes ago, did you, did you take a chance to breathe a sigh of relief at the sight of those last six words in verse 13? Have a look at them again. Here, here is spiritual oxygen for the sin-weary, guilt-laden soul having forgiven us all our trespasses. Did you see that there? Maybe I read it too fast earlier, but look at those words. Could there be a, a sweeter phrase or more welcome truth than this? I don't think anything is of greater comfort to me from day to day than this, that in Christ my sins and your sins have been forgiven in full what a blessed relief those words are at the end of verse 13. What 
power there is in a single sentence or less than a sentence of God's word. Just look at that word all. It's only three small letters, but it, but it makes a world of eternal difference. All our trespasses have been forgiven. As the old hymn writer put it, my sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. And yet we are so susceptible to thinking that this cannot be true. Maybe we think it could be true of my neighbor over there and that person over there, but, but how could all my sins be forgiven? See, the, I think the real danger of this lie is that it doesn't take a false teacher to make us doubt that we're forgiven. Although there are certainly false teachers out there who'd also like to get in on the act of telling us that there is more that we need to do besides trusting in Jesus to ensure our sins are all forgiven. But oftentimes it's our own hearts that are, that are the worst of all false teachers. Have you, have you realized that? It's our own hearts that perhaps most often condemn us and mislead us as we wonder how a God who is, who is so holy that, it, that we're told he, he cannot look upon sin, how could he possibly have forgiven us for the great black multitude of past sins and present sins and future sins still to come? And Paul knows how this feels. He knows how tiring and depressing our continual, continual battle against sin can be. You just have to read Romans 7. It's like Paul has looked right down into our own battle-weary hearts as he describes his own daily turmoil in sin. If you've ever looked long and hard at your ongoing sin and cried out something like, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Well, then you're in very good company with Paul because those are the words he used as he looked at his own heart. But the simple truth is, says Paul, that in Christ, God really has forgiven us all our sins. Not just some of them, or even most of them, or all but one of them, he has forgiven us all our sins. Sins past, sins present, sins future, all sins, great and small, if your trust is in the person and work of Jesus, all your sins have been completely forgiven. And then, as if perhaps to further convince us, knowing how much our hearts struggle to believe this, Paul goes on to paint the most vivid picture of just how it is that God in Christ has so completely done away with all of our guilt and sin. Look at verse 14. He has done it by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He pictures sin here as this debt that we owe, a great debt, like, like the bill in, a, in an incredibly expensive restaurant or the charge sheet read out against us in a court of law. There was this once ever-growing mountain of guilt and record of debt that stood against us. And that debt, Paul reminds us, came with legal demands. 
because we had broken God's good and perfect law over and over and over again. We deserved to face the full penalty of God's holy law. We deserved to have the book thrown at us. Sin against a holy and perfect God costs dearly and a price has to be paid. That price is eternal separation from the God we rejected, the curse of death and hell. That's what we deserved. But look here at what God has done instead for every believer. He has cancelled the IOU of sin that stood against us. He has cancelled my record of debt and your record of debt with all of its legal demands. He's taken it away, wiped it clean, ripped it up, never to be seen or heard of or wheeled out to stand against us ever again. And see, says Paul, how he did it. He set our record of debt aside, nailing it to the cross. Here, Paul casts our minds back to Calvary and what actually happened there. Now, if you read the Gospels, we're told that Pilate instructed his men to nail a notice above Christ's head, outlining the crimes for which he was being crucified. And that notice on the day simply read, This is Jesus the king of the Jews. But have we realized that, according to Colossians 2.14, there was another notice nailed there that day. Not one that would have been so readily visible to those passing by as they looked up at him hanging there, but one which was far more real and vivid and visible in God's eyes as he looked down on him and poured out the full weight of sin's curse upon his beloved son. It was the full record of your sin and my sin the complete record of debt that stood against us, yet in that moment it was taken and set aside from us, nailed instead to the cross. The Son of God nailed there for you and for me. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. There he made an end to all our sin. He paid not only the debt itself, but also took away all record of it. He destroyed all the incriminating evidence. It is gone. If your hope for forgiveness this morning is in Jesus and Jesus alone, even the very record of your sin is gone. Isaiah 43 verse 25, God's, one of God's Old Testament promises about what he was going to do and has now done. He says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and I will not remember your sins. Jeremiah 31, 34, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. No one not even God himself, can unearth that old charge sheet with all of the debt that once stood against us and ask us to pay again what has already been paid. Jesus paid it all. We shouldn't let our hearts be troubled. Listen to the words of this old hymn. From whence this fear and unbelief 
Hath not the Father put to grief his spotless Son for me? And will the righteous judge of men condemn me for that debt of sin which Lord was charged on thee? Complete atonement thou hast made, and to the utmost thou hast paid whatever thy people owed. How then can wrath on me take place, if sheltered in thy righteousness and sprinkled with thy blood? If thou hast my discharge procured and freely in my room endured the whole of wrath divine, payment God cannot twice demand, first at my bleeding surety's hand and then again at mine. Turn then my soul unto thy rest. The merits of thy great high priest have bought thy liberty. Trust in his efficacious blood nor fear thy banishment from God, since Jesus died for thee. No matter how much our consciences might trouble us, no matter how much false teachers might unsettle us, not even Satan himself, the great accuser, can ever make our guilt stick to us again. Christ has paid it all. And he has disarmed as well all of the dark spiritual forces that were arrayed against us. He has disarmed them at the cross. Look at verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. In that very moment when Satan and his great army of fallen angels must have imagined that they had the final victory that they had the incarnate God naked and slain upon a cross. Little did they know that in that very moment, in his suffering and final breath, it was the other way around. That God was there stripping them naked, rendering them powerless, publicly humiliating them, triumphing over them in the crucified Christ. Derek Tidball, speaking of Satan and all his forces, writes this, Having done their worst, they overreached themselves. Having played their trump card, they were trumped. In the cross, the enemy was outwitted and vanquished. There, Christ disarmed them and stripped them of all of their armor so that the enemy and his accusations need no longer be feared or even listened to. Kent Hughes tells the story of a, a dream that Martin Luther once had. So i just clarify, it was a dream, uh, not a vision, but a dream he had where he says, Luther was visited at night by Satan, who brought to him a record of his own life written with his own hand. The tempter said to him, is that true? Did you write it? The poor, terrified Luther had to confess it was all true. Scroll after scroll was unrolled and the same confession was wrung from him again and again. At length, the evil one prepared to take his departure, having brought Luther down to the lowest depths of abject misery. Suddenly, the reformer turned to the tempter and said, It is true, every word of it, but right across it all, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. 
I'm sorry for wheeling out too many hymns today, but every time I read these verses, it just makes me want to sing. So I'm not going to sing. I'll spare you, but I'll read it. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. At the cross, Christ won the victory over sin and Satan and death. And you and I share in that victory with him. Amazing. We share in his triumph because we have been filled and made complete in him. We, if we're Christians here this morning, if we simply put our trust in him, we are utterly complete in him. We have all that we could ever need in him. Complete salvation, complete forgiveness, freedom from guilt and condemnation, freedom to know and love God and to enjoy the unfathomable depths of his love towards us. All of that and more is already ours today and now and forevermore in Christ. So we need no other source of spiritual completeness and fullness than what God has already made available to us in Jesus. Let's pray.